Welcome to episode two of Up and Away. This week we're joined by Dan Bolton, aka That Mallard Guy. Dan has had an amazing career thus far in aviation, and in particular flying seaplanes and is currently a Grumman Mallard captain. He also has a great float plane and flying boat podcast called On The Step, definitely go check it out, and an amazing Instagram where he shares all his adventures flying the Mallard. I hope you all enjoyed episode one last week, and at this stage I'm hoping to have a new episode out once a week. It's a bit of work, so I guess we'll see how we go. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UpAndAwayCast, as well as follow us on your favorite podcasting service and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hey, Dan, welcome to Up and Away. G'day, Chris. Thanks very much for having me on board, mate. Very excited to have a chat with you. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on. Um, I think we'll start by asking you, when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? Mate, um... Gee, I've been a pilot now for uh, about 12, 12, 13 years, around that now. Um, so basically I'm from Geelong, uh, Victoria, and um, I got into aviation mainly because of some family ties. So my old man was a pilot. Um, his uh, his father, my grandfather, was a World War II Spitfire pilot and also Tiger Moth instructor. And um, my uncle was also at Qantas for 40 years, um, mainly on the 747, but also on the 707. And, um, yeah, so f- kind of tied in with the family there. So, um, but, you know, when I was uh, probably 15, 16, dad started a seaplane company in Geelong and um, my interest grew a lot, you know, a lot more once he started that. And, um, yeah, look, once it kind of came to end of year 12, what do I do next year, leaving school? Um, I didn't really – it wasn't like aviation was always going to be the number one must-do type thing. But, um, you know, I, I spoke with Dad, and this was just after the GFC as well. So pilot hiring was really starting to take off. Uh, sorry, this was actually before the GFC. Um, so pilot, the pilot shortage was pretty high. Um, so I decided to go and uh, to do my um, CPL license down in Geelong Aviation there at uh, Geelong Airport, which is now a housing estate. I was going to say, I don't remember there being – I don't know when there was Geelong Airport or not. No, so it's just just on the way to Torquay from from Grovedale there. It was literally two two turns um, from my – from my house where I lived in Grovedale and, and I was there within five minutes. It was so good. Um, but, yeah, now it's been sold and, and I think it's um, – I can't actually remember the name of the suburb now but, yeah, it's a complete housing estate. You wouldn't notice it uh, yeah, wow. at all. Uh, maybe they've kept the uh, the big um, balls on the power lines just to <laughs> oh, yeah. just to uh, <laughs> yeah show where it used to be. But um, So, yeah, I, I did my, my flying there took me about a year and a half. Uh, I did it kind of part-time. I, I took a loan out to do it uh, and then worked at the local coal supermarket, um, you know, stacking shelves and doing some night manager stuff. Um, and then, uh, yeah, once I'd got my ticket, um, the GFC had hit and the pilot shortage was over and there was no jobs and kind of stuck with coals for a bit until um, my old man wanted some help over summer with the seaplane company. And um, that kind of... That started me off on on my journey to where I am today. Um, did you have to get your seaplane rating? I, I suppose you got it sometime in that in that period between uh, your uh, CPL and uh, having to work with him. Yeah, so like I said, uh, being with my old man and, and working with dad, 
at, on the seaplane. There was never it was never like, you know, go get your CPL, and um, and I'll give you a job. It was never like that at all. Yeah. Um, but you know, when there was no jobs around, and and Dad was looking for someone to kind of help out over the summer there. Um, it kind of lined up pretty well, and um, yeah, it was only a few days before I started work that I went and ticked off that seaplane endorsement up in Melbourne. At uh, Melbourne seaplanes are still around today. Um, Is that the one in Williamstown? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah so right, on the cool. Cessna 185 there. Um, ticked that off in a couple of days, and then um, kind of started work um, just uh, just after my 20th birthday, I believe it was, and just on Boxing Day. Um, yeah, kicked off and um, kind of haven't looked back since. Cool. What was it like? Uh, what was it like working with your dad in the seaplane business? Um, it was great. Yeah, like um, you know, I actually wasn't living with dad at all at the time. My, my parents split up when I was um, quite young, so we'd always seen dad and everything, but um, we weren't living with him as such. So it was kind of um, an interesting dynamic, I think. Uh, with that father and son uh, relationship, I think dad wanted to see me succeed. So he kind of probably pushed me a lot more than maybe he would have pushed other parts. He probably would have kind of sat back and let them do the hard slog maybe. So I probably got a bit of an advantage there, um, which was great. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it was really fun. And it was, we had some, we had some really great days down there. Um, You know, during the summer months we were, we were flat out. I remember doing eight hours one day of flying, 23 takeoffs and landings on the water there Man. which means which means 23 dockings onto that little pontoon that we had um yeah it was it was pretty brutal work but it was su- super rewarding and i loved you know you know you know melbourne and geelong's like in the uh, the summertime they're long days um you know kind of sun set around 9 nine thirty, and you know it was just a real um awesome atmosphere down on the waterfront there heaps of people around every time the seaplane came back in you know people were standing there taking photos you know you felt like a rock star every time you you rocked up back to the pontoon there it's pretty cool um yeah it was it was really cool and uh, no i really enjoyed working with dad and um he had his fiance come down wendy she came down a lot of the time as well and um you know we, we just had a, a really great time so yeah no it was um it was great fun I imagine it was pretty seasonal too, like summer would have been pretty busy, but what was winter like? Yeah, summer was summer was pretty good. Um, winter was crap. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we were based outside, so, you know, I'd we'd pretty much try and keep the seaplane running most days still. Um when dad was flying before I came on board, he it was a it was a one pilot operation. You know, there's no need to have two pilots on. I think he kind of kept me on so we could have a break. Probably he'd been working pretty hard over the last few years to get the business up and running and um and dealing with kind of, you know, being a one man operation and having that as your sole income. So I think dad was pretty um spent and and wanted me to stay on so he could have a bit more of a break and focus a lot more on paperwork but yeah during the winter there um you know there'd be days where you sitting down on the waterfront there there's literally not a soul walking past you all day long you're in a jacket you know almost a beanie um long pants and gloves and you're just trying to kill time and you know you're kind of harassing the people who are just on a daily walk with their dog to see if they want to come flying. You know, it was, can bring your dog too. Yeah, exactly. It was just um, it was tough some days. You know, if it started raining, 
you'd kind of go jump in the plane. I mean, we do had a we did have a little kind of gazebo thing to sit under, mm. but um, you know, sometimes with the westerly winds that we got down there in Geelong, you know, it wouldn't give you much protection at all. So you'd go sit in the plane, and that it all fog up, and yeah, no, it was there were some pretty brutal times, and you'd you'd be down there kind of you know uh, most of the day from maybe nine o'clock starting setting up and leaving about four o'clock and you might only get one flight so yeah wow. um and that's a 15 minute scenic that might only bring you 120 bucks so yeah, it was pretty tough but um the summer months were certainly worthwhile and you clocked up some hours and did some some you know great flights around not just the geelong waterfront there but around melbourne city down along the surf coast um down past the 12 apostles even sometimes so yeah, it was it was great fun how long were you doing that for? And I guess you clocked up a lot of hours doing that too. Um, yeah, not a heap. I think I did about – I was there for a year and a half um, and then I think I did about 550 over that year and a half. So it wasn't a real big hour building job. Um, in saying that, I probably could have got more. I, I was right in my cricket at the time there. I was playing for Geelong Career Club down there and um, as most young guys are, they – they kind of turned down work for um, sport. So, you know, I was playing cricket every Saturday. Sometimes it was a Saturday and Sunday match. So I was turning down the weekend flights as well, which was when we kind of did a lot more flying. Um, but, uh, you know, I was having fun playing cricket, so I, I could have clocked up more hours, but kind of so be it. I chose a bit more of the, the young lifestyle rather than, uh, yeah, working hard, too hard at that age, I think. I imagine it got to the point where you wanted to move on from working with your dad. When I was younger, I started playing in a band with my dad. He was always like, yeah, you got to do this thing. And he sort of pushed me to be, you know, a better musician and do this musical thing. But he was always like, uh, you've got to eventually go and do your own thing. So was it that kind of thing where he sort of pushed you to move out and sort of do your own kind of like adventure in, in terms of flying? Or did you kind of want to get away from that? I certainly wasn't him wanting to kick me out. Oh, right. he, uh, <laughs> I think when I told him that I was leaving, I think he was kind of a bit pissed off that he had to work a bit harder now. You know? <laughs> I think he was getting used to the lifestyle where I was running this, basically running it myself. But yeah, I, I kind of wanted to move on pretty quickly. Um, it was, it wasn't great financially job. Obviously, Dad couldn't really afford to pay a, a normal kind of salary so it was most of that was subsidized with working at Coles still I was still doing you know some days on a Sunday for example I'd, I'd kind of go down to the waterfront at kind of 8 39 set up the plane uh, work until about two o'clock then literally drive back to um, near my near my kind of home and and throw the coal shirt on and work until midnight at Coles because um, that was the better money on the Sunday so um, yeah the money wasn't there to support a second pile. I think dad was just kind of giving me the hours because I wanted them and, and was kind of paying me or me more on a, a rate that was, um, you know, depending on how many flights we did. So to kind of encourage me. So, um, yeah, I was kind of looking forward to, to stepping away and, and finding a job in the industry that was, could support me financially, you know, wholly with one job. Um, so yeah, that's when I kind of pescally, kept pushing for a job up in the wit sundays and after you know kind of year of trying pretty hard i i landed pretty much my dream job at, at airwit sunday up in early beach awesome what kind of flying were you doing with them so they had um they had some beavers and some cessna caravans on amphibian floats based out of shoot harbor airport there and um yeah so we, we range from doing scenic flights over the 
with Sunday Islands and Great Barrier Reef uh, to doing uh, flights to Whitehaven Beach where you'd stop for an hour on the beach. Uh, there was also a semi-submersible um, coral viewing boat out at the reef there that they had in their own private lagoon. So we used to land on the water out at the lagoon there, transfer the passengers to the boat, uh, turn from the sea or the seaplane captain to the boat captain and take people snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef. And um, so it was, it was like I said, a, a dream come true. I was 21 years old. Uh, I was awesome. flying, <laughs> yeah, I was flying, you know, a 1947 model de Havilland Beaver with a radial engine and, you know, flying out guests to one of Australia's best beaches and, you know, uh, setting up umbrellas, pouring champagne with bare feet and, you know, my shorts all wet and wearing epaulets. It was, <laughs> it was a pretty unique job and, um, yeah, one that I absolutely loved and ended up staying there for uh, over four years. So it was, um, that was an incredible place. Yeah, I've seen uh, Shoot Harbour on some videos and it looks like a fun airport to land at. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tough one. It's in a valley there between the hills um, and luckily the, the runway and, and those hills align with the trade winds of the southeast up in the Whitsundays and, and most of Queensland there. Um, completely different weather to what we, we have, what um, Victoria has with the fronts and, mm. you know, different different wind directions basically any time of the day. Uh, majority of kind of the, the top end of Australia has those trade winds um, as part of the season there. So, um, yeah, Shoot Harbour Airport was a fun one. They, they've actually got a limit on it, I believe. You have to have a minimum of 200 hours before you – go into that aerodrome itself so yeah i actually did see that somewhere i was watching a video like a casa um oh yeah that out and back video or whatever it is um and they land at shoot harbour and they were talking about you know you need heaps of experience to land there because it's quite a you know complicated landing yeah and there's also a a, a kind of a diagonal approach Mm. for under under one four there you know um down on three two you you basically landing straight over the top of the trees on a down slope yeah, wow. um, and all of the terminals are up that end as well so it used to kind of used to be a bit of a challenge between all the pilots to see how see which taxiway they could pull off at um, in those uh, you know on those days when you use 3-2 because it was pretty rare um, which which in hindsight there wasn't probably a great thing to encourage short field landings at an aerodrome where you kind of just over the trees um, to drop it in, you know. There was a few times where where the wheels uh, may have hit a little bit harder than they should have. But, <laughs> um, yeah, no, shoot up was it was a real good fun aerodrome. As a seaplane pilot, it was, you know, we we generally land and take off in all kinds of directions and, and need to do low-level manoeuvring for that approach and onto the water. So, you know, that diagonal approach wasn't something that, Float pilots, pilots were uh, necessarily, you know, new to. But um, yeah, there was a few other operators at the airport that certainly loved coming in and out of there. From someone who's like a complete seaplane novice, um, it always interests me to think about how you would take off whilst you're on the water, considering there's no, you know, runways or you know direction that you need to take off or land in. Um, so what kind of stuff do you have to think about in terms of like wind direction and everything when taking off from the water? Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the things I love most about seaplane flying is it's just so dynamic. There's not, there's not one runway that you have to take a, a choice of, you know, which way do I take off on? Um, 
there's just so many variables that come into it with seaplane flying. Uh, like you said, wind, you've got potentially tide that could affect you somehow. You've got traffic on the water that could be boats or could be animals. I've had whales um, that I haven't known about have been kind of um, just beyond my takeoff run. You oh, know? Wow. So that could that could affect you. Um, you've obviously got terrain. You know, you're landing at places that um, – and not, you know, they're not splayed out like uh, normal aerodromes are with with terrain clearance. So um, there, there's just so many factors that you have to worry about. Um, I guess on on a normal day out there in Whitehaven, you know, the wind was generally the the same direction. So um, you taxi out into an open area. Um, you know, even little things you've got to consider like um, getting the the engine warm for takeoff on the with the pistons, the turbines. You didn't have to worry about that, but um, you know going out there and, and making sure the engine's warm to start with so that might you know uh, take a while depending on the weather um to where you start your takeoff run um if you're tucked into a bay there you might have to do a really really long backtrack uh, to get enough room to take off for the terrain um but most of the time it was you know you, you learn to read the wind on the water there as well so uh, you've already got an idea of which direction that you're going to take off in. Um, once you are ready to take off, you kind of point the point the plane into the direction you want, and then uh, you know make sure there's a clear path in front of you in regards to boat traffic. And then you're also thinking about obstacle clearance once you're actually airborne as well. So yeah, there's just so many factors that go into takeoff and the landing as well. I mean, from what we do today, you know, you kind of when you're flying over the top of an area, an area that you're coming to, to um, land, you're also thinking about the takeoff. You know, can, if I land here, am I am I able to take off again from that spot? You know, sometimes getting into a place is easy, but taking off is incredibly hard. So, yeah, you might uh, you might be thinking about the takeoff before you're even landed. So, um, yeah, it's such a dynamic um, you know set of things that you have to think about in the in the seaplane world there pretty exciting i reckon it makes would make for some fun flying it is mate yeah it's um it's it's certainly fun um obviously the 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 more fun i guess you have in aviation sometimes the risks uh increase as well which is definitely the case for seaplanes with for all all those factors but um you know risks need to be managed and that's what it's all about is is managing those risks and making sure that you you have a, a safe operation so after Air Wit Sunday, what 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 did you move on to? Uh, so I was yeah I was at Air Wit for um for kind of four and a half years, and I was kind of um, pretty happy where I was. There was a few things in the background that were kind of changing with the company that a lot of people weren't really happy with. So I kind of looked um I looked forward to what was the next challenge. Um, I'd a couple a year year or two before I left there, I'd I'd done my um instru- uh, my uh, instrument rating, um just as a bit more of a self progression type thing. With not really a job to to go to. It was something I just wanted to kind of tick off and say that I've done. And um so I went and went and did that. Um and then yeah, we looked. My wife at the time, my girlfriend. Um, we'd met in the Whitsunday. She's a she's a helicopter pilot, um, and um, we looked at places where we could move to that would both give us a bit of career progression, I guess, in terms of flying. And we t- we saw Cairns on the radar, and I targeted a company up there called Hinterland Aviation. Um, 
ended up getting a job there and she got a flying job as well up in um, Cairns, which was amazing. So, yeah, kind of moved up there out of seaplanes for a bit and um, started kind of the IFR training and uh, flying on a Cessna caravan out of out of Cairns there at Hinterland. What kind of uh, operations were you doing? So they, at, back at the, back then, I think they still do as well now, but they were, they were mainly running um, RPT or regular public transport routes up in the Cessna caravans um, kind of to the north there, some smaller communities. Um, so they ran them as two crews. So they had a captain and a first officer on these caravans, um, which was a good and a bad thing. It was First of all, it was a great thing as an FO um, to sit back in the right-hand seat in an aeroplane that you knew pretty well. I had about, I think, 700 hours, 800 hours on the caravan at that stage. Um, so I knew the aeroplane quite well, but I wasn't really that sure with the whole IFR world, you know. So it was great to kind of sit in the right seat and um, be a pretty pretty relaxed FO position. You know, we didn't really do um, a lot of flying from the right. It was mainly checklists and radios, but um, you kind of got to see it all happen you know, right in front of you. So it was that was really cool way to be introduced to the IFR flying. Um, we did did a fair bit of charter work, but a lot of the charter work was in the twins. And um, one of the restrictions that CASA has is to be an RPT uh, command pilot. Uh, you need, I think it's from memory, 150 hours of planned IFR time before you can be a captain on an RPT route. Um now, the thing was is they didn't include co-pilot time as one of those ways of having planned IFR time. Um, it was only other – I think it was other than co-pilot or dual, so I think it had to be ICUS or um, or command flying. So, And there wasn't a lot of charters in the caravan, so it was taking a very, very long time to build this 150 hours. So I was kind of stuck in this sitting as a co-pilot and they're, you know, kind of doing some pretty short legs and you know some days you'd only do an hour and a half of flying um and that wasn't really going towards that goal of getting that 150 so after about six i think it was about seven months there was a job ad come up um you know as most pilots do we kind of scan the jobs um that are happening out in, in the aviation world and i saw this one in the seaplane world that was in vietnam and um i i I kind of was – I was sitting on Lizard Island, actually. I still remember it quite well. I was had a kind of day wait on Lizard Island there, and um, I just sent the email out just to just to see what more about the job and, and whatnot and kind of without too much intent to actually really apply for it. And then on the flight back to Lizard uh, – from sorry, back, on the flight back to Cairns from Lizard, um, when I got back into reception there, I had a few missed calls on Skype, and well, I was like, geez, this is a bit serious. <laughs> Ended up um, having a bit more of a, a chat with a few other people and ended up doing a formal interview and um, took this job as a, as a captain flying um, basically brand new EX caravans on uh, amphib floats in Hanoi. And, and the intention was originally just to, just to go over there and, you know, I've always wanted to live overseas and fly overseas and this was an opportunity to do that. It was only a six-month contract. So... Um, you know, and this was also achieving those hours that I needed to come back and be a captain as well. So originally the plan was to only go there for six months, come back. We were getting married after that six-month contract, so I was going to obviously had to come back for that. Um, and then uh, once I was back and 
you know, that was we were just going to continue our life in Cairns. I mean, we'd even bought an apartment only a few months before that. Yeah, um, wow. Together, so life was going to be pretty stable for the next few years. And then um, after that first six-month contract had finished, um, they kind of wanted me to stay. And yeah, um, I was only going to stay if, if my wife Jen came over with me, and we kind of explored the area together. And so I, you know, we kind of um, did a bit more dealing and wheeling, and um, Ended up staying for another five months. So, yeah. That's cool. In terms of scenery and everything, it'd be pretty amazing flying out there in Vietnam. Yeah, it was different. Um, the scenery was, you know, unfortunately blocked a lot of the time due to the terrible haze and, uh, yeah. and pollution that Hanoi gets, um, especially in the winter time over there. Um, yeah, it can be terrible. Some of the, um, I mean, I don't have a lot of IFR experience and most of it's in the top end here where, you kind of you're either in blue skies most of the time, um, or you're avoiding cloud because it's a it's a thunderstorm. But um, a lot of the IFR flying I did over there was was sometimes generally down to minimums because of the smoke, it's just the the haze and um, smog. So, um, but yeah, on a clear day, I mean, we flew to Halong Bay every time we flew, and and the flying over there was incredible on a beautiful day. I mean. Over a thousand of those islands were just so beautiful from the air, um, and and landing on the water there was always flat because it was so protected. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty good place to fly for sure. How does flying in Vietnam differ from flying in Australia? Oh gee, where do I start? Um, do you have to learn like a whole new set of regulations and stuff as well? Is that a part of it? Yeah. So a lot of the time when you do go overseas, I believe you have to kind of sit some sort of air law exam. Um, it depends on what what kind of license you're operating under. So I um, went over there on basically a validation of my license. So basically the, the Civil Aviation of Vietnam uh, was looking at my Australian equivalent license and saying, okay, yes, you can fly here on, on a validation that that is a, a license that is kind of what you need to fly this airplane, I guess. Um so I didn't have to do any kind of air law exams uh, for that. I had to do a very, very interesting medical. Um, yeah, it was that that's sounds a pretty ominous. funny story. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it got taken because so we it was two crew over there as well, and we had Vietnamese locals who were flying uh, uh, with us as co-pilots, and um, they took us to the medical place because there's no English. Um, so you walk in, and it's just kind of if you picture like uh, Vietnam, like just a concrete building, no trees around or, you know, no greenery. It's just kind of concrete everywhere. Uh, it's like a two-story building, maybe the size of three kind of two-story homes next to all next to each other. Um, you kind of walk in and you get given this basically a piece of paper that has this list of things that you need to get ticked off and – I mean, everyone's done an aviation medical, I presume, that's listening to this podcast. And, um, you know, you go in there, the doctor taps your knees, he looks, does all these weird checks all over your body. Well, basically over there, um, there's one doctor for every one of those small little tests, right? <laughs> so you've, you you go with this co-pilot and he, and he kind of like has this list, right? And he's like, okay, let's go try room number two. And you go down to room number two, knock on the door and oh, she's busy. Okay, let's let's have a look at the sheet again. Hey, we'll go up to number, room number five, see what they're doing. You go into room number five, he knocks your knee, ticks it off and okay, no worries. We'll go to room number 10, which is upstairs now. And 
you know, and it, it's literally like a two-hour process because there's other people at different locations getting other things checked. And one of the things that was really funny was um, the pee in the cup, um, you know, component of it all. But the cup is this tiny little, it's almost like a thimble um, <laughs> test tube type thing. It's literally no no bigger than your pinky finger maybe um, with a rounded bottom. So, so you can't put it down. No, you can't put it down. <laughs> and imagine trying to pee in that um, and then do everything like you fly up and your pants up while holding this thing <laughs> and then bring it outside to give to the doctor like – it's just super weird, man. Like it's just they, <laughs> they only give that to Australians. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> We've got another one of these dickheads coming over here. We'll, we'll give give him the small cup. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that was super weird. But um, yeah, I mean, flying was Vietnam's a country that has no general aviation, so it's all airlines. Um, which, if you think about how we fly airlines over here, everything's done IFR and via um, via pre-planned routes, you know what I mean? Like uh, with, you know, waypoints all between those, you know, those routes. So um, the concept, I mean, when I when I joined the company, that they would uh, been operating for about two, two years, I think. So the, the country had kind of been getting used to them. But at the start, the concept of a plane flying not on a route um, – and just flying what we call VFR over here was just not very well known to them. Um, so that was a that took a long time. And, it, and when I got there, it was really wasn't that great. So to get to Halong Bay, if you can imagine a triangle, um, so Hanoi is one part of the triangle. Halong Bay was this other part of you know the other point of the triangle there. But the third point of the triangle was this just random waypoint, right? <laughs> So you had to go via the waypoint. We had to go via the waypoint simply because there was no um, there was no route between Hanoi and Halong Bay. Um, technically, there actually was a route between the two, but it was this airport that was right near Halong Bay. It was the between the two. There was no commercial route between those two airports, but there that was the um, alternate airport route. If someone was flying to this other airport, couldn't get in they would take this route to Hanoi. And that was the only reason why it was there. But we, yeah, sometimes when we couldn't get track shortening, uh, we would have to fly this full route and it would turn a potentially a 30-minute flight into an, over an hour and a half. Wow. Um, so that was a real painful thing. Uh, air traffic control were pretty useless most of the time. I'm sorry if they're listening. Um, <laughs> they didn't really understand anything outside of standard phraseology so um yeah if you wanted to request something hardly even out of the blue um yeah they'd be confused or tell you something completely different you know um uh, it was good having vietnamese co-pilots because then they drop a bit of vietnamese and kind of explain to them but the other the other painful thing as well was that um they even said to us Basically, we, they treated us like the bicycle when the airlines were the car. It's like, yeah, right. You know, why would they let the the bicycle go when they want to get the cars through first? You know, so there'd be times as well. And Hanoi is a very simple airport. It's literally two runways parallel together, um, and parallel to that is basically all the terminals that run straight parallel with the runway. So 
literally there's another taxiway that's parallel to the runways and then that's that's it. So it's a very simple airport to get out of where you, when you request taxi, it's just like go onto that taxiway and taxi to the holding point for that runway. So it's very simple. Um, and yeah, we'd have to, you know, we'd request our pushback because that's where we were parked. We we couldn't turn around and we had to get a pushback and all this kind of stuff. And we, and, you know, this is in a Cessna Caravan Amphib. Um, so we'd get pushed back and then we'd kind of start up and then we'd request our taxi and then halfway down the taxi, they'd just say, oh, stop there. There's some other Vietnamese airlines jet that's just started up. So let, we'll let them go before you and then you taxi a little bit further and then a Viet jet would get pushed out, before, you know. And, you know, sometimes I think the record I had was nearly 40 minutes on the ground. Um, and it, sometimes that doesn't sound like much when you talk about these complicated international airports where you're taxiing from one side completely to the other side to get to the runway but like i said this this airport was so simple um it'd be like taxiing just down your your normal ga airport um and then holding for 40 minutes type thing so it was incredibly frustrating and i used to have little patience with it and used to lose my shit a lot (laughs) uh but it was just to no avail because they just they just didn't care about you really so Mm. (laughs) Nothing you could do. It's a good uh, t- uh, training and patience and hour building and patience, I think, for you. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. How long did you end up staying in Vietnam all up? Yeah, so that was about 11 months in total. Um, at the, I mean, at that stage, the, the IFR flying was fun, but the seaplane flying was pretty straightforward. It was landing at the same location every time. Um, and everything was done for you as well. So I didn't really like that too much. I kind of more like to kind of do a bit more yourself. I mean, we, we, we got a company bus to the airport. The plane was already daily. Oh, sorry, the plane was already basically ready to go other than a daily. That was about the only thing I had to actually do. Mm. Um, the refueler refueled you. Um, yeah, it was, you know, as soon as you got back from the flight, you'd literally get on the bus with the passengers to the terminal and you would be in your company car before they could get a taxi on the way home. Like, wow. um, I mean, a lot of pilots out there seem to like this and that they like doing nothing. No no scrubbing the plane? No, none of that either. <laughs> the engineers did all that. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so much like that. I don't mind being a bit more handsy with kind of washing the plane down or, you know, getting it ready. It just kind of gives you a bit more to do, changes it up a little bit more for me. Um, so I, I kind of got bit kind of tired of the flying pretty quickly um but um yeah it was it was a great experience especially living in a, in a different country especially hanoi it's a it's a really beautiful um city and the people over there are really nice and um yeah got some really great memories from being over there so from there did you end up uh moving to who you're flying with now yeah so that um you know once uh i started that second contract actually a mate of mine who i used to work with at airwit sunday had he'd been flying for pass paley on the on the mallard and um, he mentioned that a pilot was leaving and uh, this potential that there was going to be someone else employed. So that was, I kind of said to my wife, then, you know, this could be the next step. You know, it was multi engine, it was hull rather than floats. It was. And she was like, where are you dragging me to this time? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, luckily at the time, um, she was, well, she didn't fly choppers in Vietnam, but the company she worked for in Cairns had a base in darwin so um she kind of hit them up and was actually given a job flying choppers uh, for that same company in darwin as well so we kind of snagged it again that we both got kind of 
cool flying jobs um, in the one town again. Unfortunately, she kind of didn't really enjoy the flying. It wasn't as what she, like what she was doing over in um, in Cairns, but she um, ended up taking a position with us actually at Paspalia, and she's now the business manager of the whole of the aviation division for the, oh, cool. for the Mallard. So she's really kicking goals there, which is incredible, um, and she's really enjoying that management role as well. Um, but yeah, so that kind of brought us to where we are, and uh, now flying the Grumman Mallard um, for Paspaley, you know, the last um, operating turbine um, commercial Mallard in the world. So um, yeah, wow. So it's the only one. Uh, three, sorry. Yeah. Um, oh, so uh, do you do you guys have three, or is there only three in the world? No, we've got three. So oh wow, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that's what you hear a lot of people who like um, follow me on Instagram there um, kind of ask. It's like, how many of these have you got? Yeah. I thought it was only one. Now we've got three, which is pretty incredible. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, that's pretty cool, especially when you consider that there was only 59 ever built back in 1947. So mm. uh, to have three and still using them in commercial operations, I mean, we did a fishing charter just this afternoon, um, even though our charter season has been completely um, kind of wiped out almost due to COVID. Um, we still did a commercial charter this afternoon with a, a 1947 flying boat. So it's um, it's pretty incredible. I mean, that's uh, definitely the kind of fishing charter you want to be on, hey? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not out of the plane. Um, yeah. We just fly the guests back and forward to their um, purpose-built fishing vessel. Out of uh, that but, hatch out of the nose. Yeah, that would be uh, an interesting – yeah. Be uh, be interesting pulling some some big fish in over the over the bow of the of the mallard, <laughs> of the yeah, but, of the mallard yeah yeah um, and and pulling the flicking the back the lure and getting it caught on the props that'd yeah. be interesting as well <laughs> as long as they're not moving then you should be right yeah I that that'd be an interesting actual uh, you know kind of mallard fishing with the with the engines running yeah yeah, um, <laughs> yeah uh, as long as you're not moving forward that would make it a bit bit yeah. edgy I have reckon. You, Pretty ex- pretty expensive trawling, yeah. It? Like just running the PD sixes there to uh, to trawl for fish out the front. I think some people may not know exactly what the mallard is in terms of like what it looks like and stuff, and we're making jokes about it. So uh, maybe you should describe <laughs> exactly what this plane is and what it looks like because it's pretty distinctive and pretty amazing. It is. Um, also, first of all, like most of the time with a seaplane. You you have the 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 airplane on top of floats, so um, you know two pontoons basically underneath you that you land on. Um, this is a flying boat, so literally the hull of the airplane is what we land on. Um, so just like it, you know, on the land, I think maybe to the untrained eye, especially, uh, and even maybe some some junior pilots out there might actually look at this plane and just kind of think, what the hell? That's just a it's a weird looking plane. And not realise that it actually lands on the water, uh, because it realistically looks just like a normal high-wing, twin-engine, tricycle undercarriaged aeroplane. Um, just the hull's a little, and the, you know the main body of the fuselage is quite is a lot bigger, uh, especially compared to something like a Metro, which is uh, you know nicknamed the pencil, flying pencil for a reason because it looks exactly like that. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, this it's just got a very very big body on it. Um, with a deep V hull, um, twin twin turbine engines on the wings there, and then two little floating um, or two two hanging floats from 
near the wingtips. Um, obviously, just like a or unlike a, a float plane where you've got the two pieces of, or two contacts in the water with the floats um, resembling, say, a car with its two points of contact, um, the flying boat only has one point of contact, kind of like a bicycle. So um, when it's kind of slow moving or stationary, it um, it would just tip over. So it's got two floats, one on each wing there to um, kind of counteract that falling over uh, and just kind of have it balanced there. So one at one stage during any or at any one time, one of those floats will be in the water and the other one will kind of be up in the air until the kind of weight kind of moves to that side and it'll swap over. I was going to ask, um, which leads me to my next question, what's the difference between, say, that floating hull or a you know, plane with straight floats in terms of how it moves in the water? Um, yeah, I mean, in the air, of the obvious difference is you don't have the um, the drag of the of the floats. So, you know, that's one of the great things about this plane is even though we can land on the water and we can land on some pretty rough water as well compared to float planes, um, we're still doing 180 knots TAS uh, true airspeed there. So uh, it's quite fast um, for a flying boat or, or even just for any kind of float plane. So that's one huge advantage of it. Um, on the water, it seems to be a little bit, uh, I guess you'd pardon the pun, a little bit slipperier. Um, it's, it's quite quick, especially manoeuvring. That could just be more because of the power from the engines. But even in, I find even in kind of beta, which is kind of that um, just before reverse, so when you're starting to use reverse thrust or uh, reverse power, um, I find that the aeroplane is is very, uh, probably slippery is the word to say, I guess. you, It's just very easily manoeuvred through the water. Um, anyone who has any sea, just water experience will know that you can move a very, very heavy object that's just floating there quite easily in the water. Mm. Uh, like a heavy boat, for example, you can push it quite easily once it's sitting there floating. So I guess that's the same with this. It, it responds quite well to, to any power changes. Um, it's very maneuverable. I was going to say, because um, you're saying it's a single point, is there any sort of movement along the sort of roll axis whilst you're taking off or, or landing that it would be different to, say, a plane on floats? Yeah, so obviously um, that's, what, that's one of the big, the big things with the flight boat. Um, obviously when you're on the water, you have no way of controlling that. As I said, one float will be in the water depending on kind of the lateral um, lateral weight and balance i guess or just where the weight is um and then by the time you're in the air obviously you have full control of roll so there's going to be a point there at some stage where um you you're 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 on the balance of of both um and that's one of the big things with this airplane is keeping the wings level during both takeoff and landing as long as possible um those floats out there they're not designed to be impacting the water at high speed um, in fact, there's been incidences in the past, not just with aeroplanes, but with probably most mallards where, you know, in high seas, uh, a float has hit the water and has sheared off, basically. That's where you have to get the fishing rod out again. And uh... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Very important that once you're actually up on the step, both of those will be out of the water and you want to keep those wings level as, as basically as long as possible um, throughout the takeoff and landing phase. So that single point of contact is a, is a, is a tough one. Um, the, the airplane also uh, porpoises more than a, uh, a kind of uh, float plane does. 
uh, porpoising kind of being just like the oscillations in pitch up and down um, in the in the pitch moment there, um, which can become very violent quite rapidly. Um, so that was that was a huge one to kind of learn as I progressed onto the mallard. There was um, it's a completely different technique, um, and and it was one of those ones that was um, quite. Um, it really dented the ego a fair bit. I think mm-hmm. uh, you kind of think you're a pretty experienced seaplane pilot, um, and then coming onto this thing, it'll kind of bash anyone's ego um, until they kind of spend a couple hundred hours on it and they finally figure out the the proper technique. So um, yeah, no, it's 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 a real big challenge um, flying this airplane. I'm not sure what smaller hull airplanes are like, but I have heard that uh, like things like like Lake Buccaneer, which is a four-seat flying boat with a hull there, um, can be quite uh, or can porpoise quite a fair bit as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a challenge, but that's one of the great things as well about f- flying floats and and flying this aeroplane is it's um it's it's challenging. Not every day is the same, and and it's um, yeah, always great fun. Plus, it looks very, very, very cool. Yeah, I think it does as well. Hey, yeah. like. Uh, um, I wasn't sold on it when I first saw it, I must admit. And I even went on a flight when I was working in the Whit Sundays. I, I'd ferried a, an aeroplane we borrowed from Kimberley Air Tours in Kununurra and I ferried it back to Kununurra. I flew through Darwin and met a mate who was flying the Mallard and went for a quick flight on it to a, a, a runway that was nearby. Uh, so we didn't get to take it on the water, but I wasn't completely sold on it originally when I first saw it. But um, since flying it, I've really felt falling in love with this airplane it's it's an incredible plane to fly mm. and you're right every time i kind of stand out there with it on the on the ramp there just from different angles it's just it's such an incredibly sexy machine i reckon yeah and, i think uh, so <laughs> and that's probably half the reason why um you know I, i'm kind of love sharing it on on my instagram and is it's just it's just super cool and i think every time i look at it i'm just like i just want to take a photo of that it looks so cool i know there's something um, about the lines of the hull and everything and yeah. i think how it sits in the water is really cool because it's kind of low it's like a low riding sports car or something it is yeah <laughs> and that's another thing to get used to as well is the the height that you're sitting at as well in the water compared to a float plane um you know you're right down there in it and like i said before with with the buccaneer i think you're even even lower and it's just like you you're almost underwater but yeah um it's it's really cool. Uh, it's a great machine to fly, and um, yeah, like I said, it's it's very it's it's a very unique aeroplane, and um, yeah, great fun. Being uh, made in nineteen forty seven, too. Um, what's maintenance like on it? Do you have to have spare parts and everything kept on hand? And yeah, um, maintenance is pretty tough on it. Um, so we run a four, we call it a four phase system. So every fifty hours, it has a phase check rather than you kind of standard GA 100 hourly. Um, but over those four phases, um, things would get checked throughout those 200 hours and then it gets reset. So it's basically like an extended 100 hourly over 200 hours, but things like engines get checked um, on, say, one and three would be the left engine and two and four would be the right engine. Um, and then other parts of the aeroplane get checked as well through that time. Uh, which has its positives and negatives. I guess it's in in maintenance a lot more because of every 50 hours, um, but also then you're getting more time to check over the whole aeroplane a bit more often, I guess. Um, yeah, parts are a huge, huge issue. Um, 
you know, like I said, 59 built over 70 years ago. There literally is no spares left in the world unless you want to go to another mallard and, and pick off that. And no one's making anything either. Oh, exactly. No mm. one's making them and they haven't for years. So uh, we're basically in the in the process of remanufacturing parts where we have to send, you know, US parts to manufacturers and kind of get them to basically rebuild um, or, you know, do a second piece of it. So, um yeah, it's a pretty complicated process. I guess that's my wife's problem, not mine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just fly them and break them and she has to organize the maintenance. You know, how do we keep these things in the air? So, um, yeah, no, the maintenance and, and obviously being a salt saltwater environment, um, it, it's a challenge. We have to wash the wash the planes down every, every time we fly. You don't have anyone to do that for you anymore? No, I don't, no. Ah. Another great chance to look at and, and kind of admire how beautiful they are, you know? Totally. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's a big process. Corrosion control is a huge issue with obviously the salt water and stuff. So, um, yeah, maintaining them is is incredibly hard. I think, you know, Paspaley is a, is a pearling company. That's, that's where they make their money from. I think if you were to use this airplane to try and do some sort of, you know, business with flying boats – you would find it very difficult to um, to probably make make money if you know what I mean. So um, I think it's that's the reason why they're still flying today is because we are backed by one of you know the world's best growers and um, mm-hmm. you know so that's why we're still around with this airplane. So it's currently got turbines as well. So I guess that makes it a bit easier to maintain having modern engines. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, so when we got them. Um, I think it was over 30 years, around 30 years ago, there was three of them and two of them were piston and one was uh, turbine and they were just having issues with the tur- with the pistons. They weren't lasting very long. Um, they were always kind of breaking down, whereas the turbine one was a lot more reliable. So that's what made them um, convert the other two to turbine as well. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's one of the great things. I mean, you don't have um, – the OEM support or original manufacturer support basically um, from Grumman for the aeroplane, but at least we do with the engines. Obviously, Pratt & Whitney PD6, one of the most popular turbine engines around um, to have, you know, manufacturing support from them anywhere in the world is is, is a great advantage. Um, and then you've just got to kind of deal with the rest of the, the parts of the aeroplane. You're flying a lot in tropical conditions and have flown a lot in tropical conditions. Um... Does that uh, is there anything to consider when flying when you're flying in tropical conditions? Like, yeah, it's uh, much hotter. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you know, Darwin, um, basically over thirty degrees daytime temperatures all throughout the year, uh, with mainly the humidity being the thing that changes the most. Um, so right now we're in the dry season. Uh, you won't see a cloud generally for six months. You won't see any rain for six months, especially. Um, so even though we're IFR, we're basically in VMC conditions all the time. Um, and then when it comes into the wet season, it is very much challenging environment. Um, like I said, to start off with the temperature, I mean, we don't have air conditioners in this aeroplane. I was going to ask. So, <laughs> yeah, so on the ground, it could be 33 degrees with nearly 100% humidity and you're sitting in the, basically a sweat box. You've literally got sweat dripping down your elbows as you're holding the power levers. Um 
and, and you're just covered in sweat basically. Uh, luckily, up at 10,000 feet, the, the temperature does drop down to around about 10, 12 degrees. So you do get a little bit of a reprieve, but the aeroplane's quite heat-soaked already, so um, you're still still warm. Um, but um, And then obviously the, the main thing with the tropics here is the thunderstorm activity. Um, it's, you know, Darwin is just a place with incredible thunderstorms. Um, you know, huge, huge cells and, and just numerous amounts of cells that almost arrive at like clockwork, um, especially over the Tiwi Islands. They literally have a, a, a thunderstorm named after itself or, you know, a name for this thunderstorm um, because it's so regular. Um, old Hector the Convector. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, you can either, it's got its own Wikipedia page. You can oh, no. search it up. Uh, like literally like 2.30, 3 o'clock every afternoon, you'll see Hector on the horizon there. Um, I think even like Boeing even flew an aircraft or maybe Airbus over to test because they knew how predictable this um, thunderstorm was. So Yeah, wow. Um, so, yeah, that's a huge one. But like I said kind of earlier, up here you're flying IFR but you're kind of avoiding the weather a lot of the time, you know, um, because it's not just kind of – thick stratus for you know at 3000 feet that you'll fly through um for most of your flight it's basically clear skies with thunderstorm build-ups everywhere um when the when the kind of monsoonal trough drops down and you do have kind of days straight of, of rain um you will have days where you kind of are imc most of the flight but it'll probably be more due to um you know the rain and also, you know, some obviously clouds, but um, embedded thunderstorm stuff. So you really do focus a lot on your weather radar on the in the aeroplane there and avoiding kind of big, heavy um, build-ups. And, yeah, it's I guess it's really um, two different types, two different completely types of environments that we fly in. So, yeah, um, that makes it a, another challenge as well. Crazy, crazy. So it sounds very exciting um, uh, being a seaplane pilot, particularly um, flying the Mallard. Have you ever considered flying any other planes or like not being a seaplane pilot, uh, joining the airlines or something? Oh, it'd be pretty hard to join the airlines at the moment, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, well, true. Yeah, of course. Unfortunately, but um, oh, look, yeah, I think the, the idea of the airlines um everyone thinks about at some stage um you know there's the the idea of living in maybe a place that you want to live in a bit more than others um generally the salaries are a bit better on with airlines etc but um to be totally honest i've never really been one who's really been interested in that side of aviation um i I really hate airports to be honest (laughs) i'd hate going through airports as a passenger i could not imagine going through all that crap with security and you know car parking and all that kind of stuff that you have to deal with when you go to an airport as as a as part of a job um and don't let me um, i'm sure a lot of people love the type of flying that you do with the airlines but i i'm not really sure if that's the kind of um flying that i would enjoy the most um i think i'd really get a i think i would get a kick out of it at the start uh with learning to fly a complex airplane like that a big airplane i think you know, those pilots are obviously quite skilled and, and great at what they do and um, it would be an, a great challenge and I'd love all the stuff about, you know, being 
really good at what you do with the simulators and, and having all that stuff to really polish off your skills um, and, and especially knowledge and whatnot and, and system stuff. I think that stuff would be really cool mm. to learn some, some you know, bigger, you know, jet systems and all that kind of stuff. Um, Seems like another world to me, all that stuff. It does, yeah. It mm. completely does to me as well. But I think what keeps kind of dragging me back to the seaplane world is the ability to flying um be up in the air there and then you know go down and land on the water and and mix that experience about being on the water with being in the air as well you know um there's just such a a cool variety of flying that you get to do in the seaplane world and uh, there's nothing better than kind of coming into land and you're kind of crossing over a beach or you're crossing over you know some rock wall or whatever that you have to drop into and and then landing on the on the water there and, you know, pulling the window down and looking out the window and, and seeing, you know, the PD six hanging over the over the water there. It's 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 a pretty crazy experience and um it's a beautiful environment to operate in. So yeah, I I don't think I really will um or really have have many thoughts about going to the airlines, not at this stage of my career anyway. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing with the flow plane stuff and yeah, having a lot of fun. And you like it so much you've got your own seaplane podcast too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so on the step with that Mallard guy. Um, cross promotion. Cross promotion. Yeah, uh, only started that um, a couple of months ago. Uh, yeah, probably actually about yeah four months ago now. Um, it's gone quick already. Um, almost twenty, I think twenty seven, twenty eight episodes out already, which is awesome. Um, Congrats. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's been been great fun. It's been great to kind of meet um, some people I might not have met before. You know, within the industry around the world. Um, like I'm sure you're going to experience over the next kind of few years doing this podcast. So that's what, yeah, that's what I thought was super exciting about it. I reckon. Yeah, it's you do get to meet some interesting people and and hear their stories and get to share their stories as well. So, um, yeah, and I love I love all things seaplane. So it's all great to to share um their stories and and um and listen as well. So no, really loving um doing that podcast on a bit of a break at the moment for a month, but um yeah, we're going to be back. Uh, in a couple of weeks to to share some more stories. Awesome. Um, you you recently did one uh, an episode that I heard about gear down water landings, uh, which seems very scary. Um, what can you tell us about that, and why is that so dangerous for seaplanes? Well, it is scary, mate. Um, and I think a lot of amphib pilots out there um, who fly seaplanes they they should if they if they're not they should be really questioning why they're not and that is that they sh- they should be very scared of this thing um not scared it to the point where you're going to um stop flying because of it but i think scared to the point or nervous to the point with it which will make you a lot more conscious of what you're doing and will, will make you put a lot more effort into uh, making sure that you're doing things properly to avoid this accident happening um i think one of the things about the gear down water landing that kind of strikes me the most is that Everything can just go from being so normal uh, to being a life-threatening emergency in a matter of seconds. Um, you know, obviously landing, if, if, if anyone hasn't seen it before happen, uh, just Google gear down water landing. And um, there's some videos on there that will show you how simply and how quickly an airplane or a float plane with the gear down on landing on the water will just flip upside down straight away. And then your in your pilot seat uh, with your seatbelt on, 
thinking that life's great and you're an amazing pilot and all of a sudden you're upside down with the cabin being filled up with water and you've potentially only got 30 seconds to get out before you live or die um, and and then save the passengers on board that you might have on. So, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, I did the Seaplane Pilots Association Conference last year at Rathmines. I did a presentation there about it and I've turned that into a podcast episode uh, which you can hear on my on my show. I think everyone should check that out. I think especially, especially Seaplane Pilots. It's just... It doesn't, you know, people who've got experience, that doesn't matter. You, you're still, people are still doing it with 10,000 hours. You know, one of the incident cases that I read was, I think, two pilots. One was an FAA examiner who was examining the other guy who was an ATP pilot um, with both of them, I think, had nearly, had, I think from memory, had over 10,000 hours each um, and on a check ride, they still left the gear down on a water landing. Like it can happen to every anyone. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a private or commercial pilot. Like it, it happens to both. And I think one of the things that I found most disturbing was that just pilots just don't do enough with checklists. I think, you know, like I could tell you, Chris. I mean, you're you're a student pilot who's learning to fly, who's never never been in a seaplane at all. I could tell you right now or I could ask you right now um, what position does the gear need to be for a water landing and you, you could tell me. Mm. It's got nothing to do with how many hours you've got on a plane. Totally. Um, we all know what position these these wheels need to be in for a, a, for a landing on the water but people just get complacent and they don't do checklists properly. They might not do a checklist at all. Um, I think anyone who flies an amphib aircraft should be at least checking the gear minimum twice before they do any landing, not just a water landing, um, and doing a conscious gear check where they're actually comparing what they're landing on. By What I like to do is I like to point at what I'm actually landing on and pointing at the gear selector and what, what, what the gear is telling me as well. So you're actually, you're actually looking up and you're actually kind of, it's pretty hard to point at something and say something and, and it be something else, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're engaging with it as well. Exactly, you're engaging with it. it. And looking at it and pointing. Yeah. It's it's very easy to just go gear up, yep, okay, that's good. Like there's so many checklist items get missed when you just quickly read over something and just follow a flow. I mean, that the problem one of the problem with checklists, and you'll find that throughout your career as well, is that it becomes a routine and, and a, a repeated cycle. So all of a sudden you're saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over. You can fall into this trap of saying something that when it's not in the right spot. Um, you know, it might just be something simple like landing lights on. You know, you might say every time you go to take off, but have you actually checked them and actually seen that they're actually off and you've just called them on because you're used to saying landing lights on? Um and that's why I really, with the gear check, it should be something that pilots take a good opportunity basically to save their life, to look up, point out, and look at what they're landing on and compare that with their gear. I mean, it still happens. One happened last week, you know, like people need to take the time out to check what they're doing before yeah. they go and land these airplanes. Like you'll you'll kill somebody or you'll kill yourself. Like it's people just need to take it a bit more seriously, I think. I think it's definitely a, a lesson that everyone should uh, take on board to, um, you know, 
go over what what they do in that sort of situation and you know um in your landing procedures and you know check what you do and make sure you're safe you know moving forward exactly and like with with retractable gear pilots i mean generally you have a wheels up landing on the runway um you're going to be met with embarrassment you might ride an airplane off you might you know you might very unlikely you might actually be injured as well but generally most of those aeroplanes they touch down with the gear up they slide to a a halt everyone walks out and the plane's got some damage and you've got egg on your face but with the gear down water landing um like i said you can you can so easily be killed or killed kill someone in this accident that people just need to take a bit more time and consciously check their gear before they they land on the water so well on a slightly Morbid. Brighter note. <laughs> oh, I thought you were finishing, sorry. <laughs> you have a pretty amazing Instagram that everyone should also check out. Um, it's called That Mallard Guy. Um, it's at That Mallard Guy, I'm pretty sure, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Just anyone can search That Mallard Guy. That Mallard Guy, guy and it'll come up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got some amazing content. Um, like we are talking about before, it's like, you know, some amazing shots of the Mallard and, you know, some of the amazing places you fly. So everyone should suss that out. Um, how do you go about creating content for that and like what cameras do you use and what what kind of content do you like to feature and show people i must admit i'm not really a big camera gearhead i used to be kind of right into cameras a bit more but uh i think you know i've I've had a baby recently last uh, nine month old now and um i just find camera gear is so expensive um and and then you've got the time editing and and all that kind of stuff. I don't real I don't have an SLR camera at the moment. I used to, but it kind of died, and I've never replaced it. Um, I do have a GoPro Hero Seven, um, which I do like. Uh, it's pretty handy to have in the cockpit there, and um, we've got a, a CASA approval for a wing mount now, um, so you can see some pretty cool footage of the plane landing from from that uh wing float um those are very awesome yeah definitely yeah, check that so, out. yeah yeah i think all of us kind of enjoyed seeing that from a different perspective yeah um and then just my iphone xs so um can't really say that i'm a big camera gearhead. um i do use final cut pro for editing video um i use GarageBand from the podcast um i've always had kind of mac gear and, and enjoyed editing with mac kind of stuff um and photoshop obviously as well when i want to do actual some photoshop stuff but uh, most of that's all self-taught um but yeah I'd, I'd love to get more into photography with some some good gear in the in the future but at the moment just um kind of yeah using some pretty basic stuff you're definitely maximizing all that stuff because it looks awesome and all the uh content looks great so yeah well these days you i guess you don't really need too much do you to no, um, I think you need a good eye and uh, some good content, which you definitely have, I think. so. <laughs> yeah, d- definitely. Like, I mean, I've had people kind of ask about making videos, for example, and I think one of my best ad- best ad- uh, advice for anyone kind of making a video out there, for example, is you've got to film it properly first before you go and editing it. Totally. Um, yeah, you can't, re- you can't fix poor filming. Mm. So um, I think that's probably what helps. Oh, by the way, I've got a drone as well, I've got a Phantom 4 drone as well, which I use every now and again. But um, one of the issues with our airplane is a lot of the flying we do is we go from A to B and then back to A and um, you don't really get out very often, especially on the water. So I don't really ever get a chance to see the airplane on the water that much. 
And then when we do get out of the aeroplane at Curry Bay where we have a, a fuel pontoon, um, it's basically just refueling and then we're kind of out of there. So um, there's not a lot of time to film it on the water. We kind of have to wait for times when we're on a mooring or yeah, right. we're kind of doing some other stuff. That's that's when I'd like to take my drone a bit more and um, get it up. Because I did see some r- pretty cool aerial shots. I'm like, how did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, particularly of beaches and stuff in the Mallard. There it looks awesome. Yeah, we did that beach. So uh, when we did the Rathmines trip, um, I don't know if you know that much at all about that trip, but we flew the Mallard to the seaplane, the Rathmines Catalina Festival oh, yeah. last year, and um, in that's in Lake Macquarie, New South Wales. So it was a quite a big trip, but we flew through the Whitsundays because it was a four-day safari with eight passengers, and um, you know I was kind of bringing the plane back to. Whitehaven Beach where it had operated through Airwit Sunday like you know 40 years or 30 years beforehand um and I was you know that's where I used to fly you know and I hadn't been there since I'd left so and I was here I was flying this mallard in and landing on the beach and I was like that's it I'm bringing the drone I'm gonna get (laughs) some amazing shots of the plane sitting on Australia's best beach you know it's just gonna be amazing um, first of all, the day was horrific. It was one of the worst days I've seen at Whitehaven. We were even lucky just to get to the beach. Um, there was literally no other boats there at all. It was so bad. Um, and then secondly, the drone had an issue and I couldn't even get it in the air, which was so frustrating. Oh. Um, but we got some pretty cool photos of it on the beach anyway with uh, with the phone. So. Awesome. I'm going to finish with a bit of a uh, fun question. What would your dream flying trip that you could take just for fun be? Um, I think, first of all, it'd have to be in, in kind of a dream private machine, which I think would be something like the, a dream, uh, you know, kitted out Mallard or, or even Grumman Albatross with, with you know, a, a bed, maybe like a couple of bunk beds. Oh, how good would it be as like a caravan recreation yeah, sort of thing like exactly. that? Yeah, I think I think an Albatross would be probably better because it's a bit bigger. Um, so you could have like a couple of bunk beds set up, maybe a couch, a couple of recliners or whatever in, in the cabin there. And then just kind of tour the world. I reckon that'd be the most oh, yeah. ultimate, um, seaplane kind of flying adventure. Um, but yeah, I think that'd be it right up on the top of the list for sure. Totally. You're making me jealous. I want to do that now. <laughs> I'm making myself jealous. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can all dream. Exactly. Yeah, it's been amazing having you on and sharing your stories about flying seaplanes as well as um, your you know, career uh, in Vietnam and across Australia and Airwit Sunday. Yeah, from humble beginnings flying in your dad's seaplane business. Very cool. Yeah, cheers, mate. Yeah, it was great to have you on. Uh, great to have um uh, Great to be on your show. I was going to say, uh, are you, you're getting tongues twisted because yeah, you used to uh, so. <laughs> saying people <laughs> on your own podcast. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, thanks for having me and and uh, asking me to be on the show. And um, yeah, appreciate you taking the time to to have a chat and hear my story. So yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. Yeah, and uh, I have to come see the Mallard sometime. Absolutely, mate. You're more than welcome to come and visit. Anyone is and come and uh, just let me know and I can show anyone around if they want to come have a look. That'd be awesome. Hopefully once uh, we can all travel places as well because at the moment yeah, exactly. it's a bit, bit edgy. So. Yep. Yeah, in the future. But yeah, thanks again uh, and yeah, we'll catch you soon. Cheers, Chris. All the best. Thanks for listening to episode two of Up and Away. Like I said earlier, I'm hoping to have a new episode for you once a week. Uh, in the meantime, follow us on Instagram and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
I have some fun merch coming this week, so I'm keen to give away some stuff to the best podcast reviews. So keep a lookout on Instagram. I'll be posting up the best review, and if I pick yours, get in touch and I'll send you something. See you next week. Thank you.